please turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1. I was telling those present in our congregational meeting this morning that um, this morning as I was going back through my notes uh, to read from, uh, that I had taken for the sermon, uh, I lost the second half of, of my sermon. And so it was shaping up to be a real short one uh, this morning. But then I did find the second half uh, very late in the game. Uh, so it was, uh, so it's going to be a rough, it's going to be a rough go. So I actually have to look at two different documents this morning, one that has the first half and then like one that has the second half. So just bear with me and uh, we'll, we'll make it through and, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to get to lunch uh, eventually. So uh, Romans chapter one. And uh, we're continuing this morning on a series, a mini-series, on the topic of homosexuality. And so let's begin um, by reading in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 32. And this will be the passage of scripture that we, we unpack uh, this morning in our, uh, in our study. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Let's actually begin in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who was blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God, that they know God's righteous decree, 
that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask for your help this morning as we work through this clear yet heavy passage about the wrath of God that exists on mankind because of sin. And our desire this morning would be to come away with a heart of thankfulness that this is us apart from the goodness and grace that you've shown us. And like Jesus, a heart of compassion for those who are still in their sin and abiding or underneath the abiding wrath of God. So, so help us, Lord, to be moved by this text to be more faithful servants of you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last week as we began this series on the topic of, of homosexuality, we began by laying the, the groundwork for the entire discussion. And while what we have said and what we are saying uh, specifically pertains to homosexuality, there's a sense in which uh, we're also laying the groundwork and the foundation for uh, a number of topics in our current day that are related to gender and sexuality. But we began last week, really where any topic on this discussion should begin, and that's with Genesis 1 and 2, noticing the intentionality with which God created. And what we notice from Genesis 1 and 2 is that he created men and women to be joined together in a complementary relationship that would include sexual intimacy and, Lord willing, children. And once we established those realities from Genesis 1 and 2, we highlighted the fact that when the rest of the authors of Scripture want to speak about or touch on these issues of gender and sexuality, that they use Genesis 1 and 2 as their foundational understanding and as their proof text for what the Bible says and how we should think about about these matters. See, the authors of Scripture do not see the book of Genesis as some sort of -of out-of-date myth. Rather, they see it as especially important in laying the foundation for what is to come following the book of Genesis. So when Jesus is asked about divorce in Matthew chapter 19, he says, well, what you need to know is this is not how it was intended from the beginning, but from the beginning, he made them male and female, And the intent was that they would leave their father and mother and cling to one another in marriage. So the argument is often, well, Jesus doesn't have anything to say about homosexuality. And and the answer is, well, Jesus already affirmed for us the intent of creation. And so Paul as well, when he wants to affirm these matters of gender and sexuality, uh, Paul as well appeals to the book of Genesis. And so that's where we began our study last week. But this week, we want to um, come to Romans chapter 1. But before we do that, I want to remind you just of, of, of what's motivating this particular series this morning. I mentioned four things last week, and I'll just touch on them again briefly. First, I think it's safe to say that the issues of gender and sexuality are the most pressing issues facing the church today. Now, by that, I don't mean that this is the most pressing issue facing our church but the church at large, this is probably the most pressing issue uh, that, they're, that they're facing. 
Every so often, every so many decades, there's a different theological issue that, that arises to the, to the surface, and it sets the church on different trajectories in the years to come. And, and so this, was no, this issue is no different. It just happens to be the defining issue of our day that will define where churches ultimately go. Either they will lead in a, a liberal, open, and affirming direction, or they will continue to be faithful to preaching the, the truth. And there's really no middle ground on this issue because the issue doesn't really allow for one. But secondly, the reason we're addressing this issue is because as often happens, the world's ideology seeps down into the church. So that even if believers are not, uh, even if believers are not buying into the arguments wholesale that are out there, there's always that, that impact that the world has on the church. And so there starts to be, if we're not careful, a subtle drift in, in subtle ways uh, toward uh, or, or away from, as we discussed last week, the foundational teaching of Scripture. Now, even more concerning, though, is, is that in some churches, the, the shift is not so subtle. They are actually saying that the Bible allows for loving, committed, same-sex relationships, and that Christians should accept and support those identifying as gay and lesbian. The third reason we're considering this series, though, this morning, and these start to get maybe a little more important for our congregation is that these matters are pressing in on ordinary believers in a way that they never have before. Okay? Whether it's in the workplace or in friendships or in family relationships, believers are having to think through these issues like they never have had to think through them before. And so it's good for us to come back to the Scriptures and get a fresh look at what the Bible says. And then lastly, we, we noted last week, is we can't assume that the next generation is necessarily going to buy in or is buying into these, the biblical view of gender and sexuality. So we don't want to assume that they're buying in, but we want to continue to make it clear uh, what the teaching of Scripture is on these particular issues. Now, the clearest word on homosexuality in the Bible is found in Romans chapter 1. And no consideration of the topic is complete without a careful exposition of this passage. And so that's where we want to devote our attention this morning. Uh, Not only is this passage clear, but I think what we'll see from this passage is it helps us think about how to interact with and, and address this particular issue. So it's not just like, what does this passage say about homosexuality? But it also prepares us and equips us to think talk about and engage this particular issue. Now the discussion, if you look in your Bibles, the discussion officially begins on homosexuality in verse 18, where Paul begins to talk about the wrath of God against sin. But what I want to highlight this morning, and I think it's going to be particularly important as we get to the conclusion, the section actually goes back farther than that to verse 16. Paul, as you remember from our scripture reading, He's been desiring to come and to minister to the brothers here in Rome. But to this point, he's been hindered. And he he makes it clear, though, when he arrives in verse 15, that he is eager to preach the gospel. But then from verse 15 to verse 16, there's a shift in the book of Romans where Paul begins a new section in verse 16 that really goes all the way to chapter 5 and verse 21. So, so chapter 1, verse 16, all the way to the end of chapter 5. And what Paul does in this section is he begins to unpack the glories 
of the gospel of Christ. And, you know, sometimes Romans, the book of Romans is called Paul's magnum opus because in this book he sets forth some of the longest, clearest, and most important teaching on the gospel and how one is declared righteous in God's sight. But, but 116 to 521 is the core teaching of, of Paul's doctrines of, of the gospel and of justification. Now, you might be thinking, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm familiar with the book of Romans, and the first three chapters are not about the gospel, but they are about the depravity of man and the reality that there is none righteous, not even one. So how can you say that this section, 116 to 521, is all about the glories of the gospel? Well, I think you raise a good point. But it's helpful to understand this, that no explanation of the gospel is complete without a clear explanation of the sinfulness of man and the abiding wrath of God against sinful man. So notice how Paul argues in verses 16, 17, and 18. I want to show you how the gospel naturally moves into to wrath in verse 18. Okay, he begins in verse 16, and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is a strange way to begin the section, right? Because he doesn't sound very confident in the gospel. He begins by saying, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. Like, imagine if I was to introduce my wife to you, and I'd be like, this is my wife, Julian, and I'm not ashamed of her, all right? You would be like, well, what about her is there to be ashamed? Why would you make a statement like that, okay? But, but when Paul says this, the gospel in this day in the Gentile world was, was, was mocked and, and ridiculed. And Paul's saying, but, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel because there is no shame in it. Quite frankly, he says, it is the power of God to transform lives for everyone who believes. Okay, so Paul is, is not ashamed of this gospel but then he goes into verse 17, he says, for, for in it, in the gospel, and he uses this word reveals, and he's going to use this word reveals two times, once in verse 17 and then once in verse 18. Okay, the gospel reveals two things. One in verse 17, it reveals the righteousness of God. And what that means is that how a believer can become righteous or be declared righteous in God's sight. It's, it's through faith, from beginning to end, by faith, or from faith to faith, he says there, okay? So he reveals the, how one receives the righteousness of God, verse 17. But the gospel also reveals and says something about the nature of the wrath of God in verse 18. Okay? So what we might say about verses 16, 17, 18, here's the connection. The gospel is needed because the wrath of God is real. And what he's going to do is going to show the reality of the, of the wrath of God in verse 18 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 19 or 20. I forget the exact, the exact verse. Okay, so we cannot properly grasp the importance and relevance of the gospel apart from a clear understanding of the abiding wrath of God against sin. Okay, so that's the connection between verse 16, 17, and then verse 18. Now the concept of wrath is one of those concepts that's largely ignored in society and in the church is is often ignored this idea of god's wrath 
well, people pit the two against each other, like, well, God is a loving God, and so he certainly can't be wrathful at the same time. But I think what we see in Scripture is these two can exist in, in harmony. But a, a detailed explanation of the wrath of God is important, I think, because most of mankind assumes that we're all doing pretty well. Like, we might not be doing as, as good as we could, but by and large, we're, we're doing pretty well, and we're, we're actually improving. We're making progress in society. And Paul's writing to say, no, you're not doing well. The wrath of God is hanging over you. No matter how well you think you're doing, you are under the wrath of God. So Paul shatters this thinking in the first three chapters of Romans, and his grand conclusion in chapter 3 is there is none righteous. There's not even one who seeks after God. All have gone their own way, as he quotes from Isaiah. And so this is the beginning of that section, verses 18 to 32. So that's what we'll cover this morning in these sections. I want to look at four points today. First, we see this, the revealing of the wrath of God in verse 18, the first portion of verse 18, the revealing of the wrath of God. So verse 18 begins with this statement. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, the Greek word behind this word, wrath, is a word of intense passion. It's implying that God is heated and passionate against the sinfulness of man. So when Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon, and the title of it was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, this was, the, this was an accurate description, because God is seen to be wrathful against sinners. And this is how the verse starts. It starts with a warning that God is not happy. Now, there are different types of wrath in the Bible, okay? Uh, We get a picture of this in chapter 2, verse 5. If you just turn over one page, Paul warns sinners of this, that they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, Okay? We call this particular wrath in chapter 2, verse 5, an eschatological wrath. It's one that is still yet to come. But notice that in verse 18, it's a different kind of wrath. Notice in verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is revealed. It's not future tense. It's not will be revealed, but it is present tense. It is right now being revealed against all unrighteousness and expressions of ungodliness. So what does Paul mean in verse 18 when he says that presently the wrath of God (coughs) is being revealed? Well, Paul's not talking about a future wrath, but he's talking about a wrath that right now is already happening and being poured out against sin. Now, John Owen referred to this particular wrath with this term. He referred to it as judicial abandonment. judicial abandonment. And that's what we see in this passage. That God's wrath is being poured out on sinners and there's a a, a judgmenting or a a judicial um, abandonment that's taking place here in this passage. And that's the form of of, of God's wrath in this passage. So so notice this phrase. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but notice this phrase in verses 24, 26, and 28. Three times he says in this passage, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. So verse 24, 26, and 28. And what this passage is, 
is an explanation of judicial abandonment, where God abandons people to their sins. He no longer restrains them. And in that sense, this is God's wrath presently being revealed on sinners. We catch a glimpse of this in Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12, when when Psalm says this, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So, he says, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Okay? It's a form of the wrath of God to just take his hands off the wheel. Okay? And to just let sinners do as they please. And that's the wrath here that's, being ha- that's happening in, in chapter 1. Okay? It's being poured out against sinners today. Now, notice one more thing before we get into our second point. Notice the scope of God's wrath in verse 18. It is against, he says, all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That is, no one escapes the wrath of God apart from Jesus Christ. It's not that the wrath of God is just poured out against those awful sinners, but then the more morally upright sinners somehow are able to escape it. No, all expressions of unrighteousness and ungodliness, God's wrath is heated against. Okay, so then the passage then continues, and we see why God is wrathful and and burns hot against sin. So secondly, notice the reason for the wrath of God. The reason for the wrath of God in verses 18 through 22. So at the end of verse 18, we see the reason why God is angry. God is angry with a specific sin. Now notice this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's the answer. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so so sinful humanity is involved in a cosmic conspiracy of truth suppression. The truth, now the truth that man suppresses, it's unpacked for us in the next several verses. In, in some will say this, that it's this idea that, that, that every man knows that God exists because he's clearly seen in the creation of, of all things. But rather than honoring, we see, rather than honoring God and giving thanks to him, sinful humanity makes every effort to subdue this reality. Okay? That's the idea of, of suppressing the truth. Suppressing the truth means that, that one knows something to be true, but then they do all they can to, to push it down or to stamp it out so that it doesn't live as some sort of reality in their lives. I like the illustration that R.C. Sproul uh, gives, kind of a vivid picture of this analogy of a, a large coil or spring that we have the strength to, to, to sort of Move, move or maneuver, but we can never in our own strength push it all the way down. Okay? And you you kind of get that image of, of what that would feel like to, to do that. Okay? And that's what mankind is trying to do with the, with the knowledge that God exists and that he created everything. They're trying to, to push it down, but it continues to recoil back at them in every aspect. Now notice in verse 18, that what sinful humanity does here suppresses the truth, but it'd be better to say that this is what they attempt to do. They're not successful in suppressing the truth. 
because everywhere the power and glory and majesty of God is, is seen in all of creation. And so, it, 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 like I said, it recoils back in their face. They, they can't ever be successful at suppressing the truth. Although sinful man tries, they will never be successful. Now, in the verses to follow, verses 19 to 22, they unpack this idea of truth suppression in more detail. And I want to notice, just by way of observation here, six things about mankind's attempt to suppress the truth. Right? So this is what they do. They suppress the truth, and then now we'll notice six things in the verses to follow that, that describe this in more detail. So first of all, the, the truth of, that mankind attempts to suppress, this is commonly referred to as general revelation. Okay? There are different kinds of truth we see in Scripture. There is special revelation, and there is general revelation, okay? The, so general revelation is where, or excuse me, special revelation is where God communicates to a special group of people, a particular group of people, or maybe a particular individual through very clear and specific revelation. So whether that be a dream or a vision or a prophecy, or in our case, the very word of God, this is God's special revelation to us, okay? But general revelation is different. It's general in its scope in that it's given to all mankind, and it's general in its content that it gives a general knowledge of God, not every specific detail about God or the saving power of, uh, of, of the gospel, okay? So we're talking here about this concept of general revelation as theologians refer to it. Now, secondly, we notice this. General revelation makes God's existence conspicuous to all mankind. Okay, notice in this passage the, the number of places where knowing and perceiving are, are mentioned. All right, so pick up in verse 19 and just notice how many things are said about the knowledge that, that, that man has about God. Okay, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Okay, so what we see here then is, is what God, God's existence is, is, is made clear in the things that he has made. Now, sometimes we distinguish between atheists and agnostics as if the agnostic is maybe a more reasonable individual than the atheist. The atheist says, there is no God, but the agnostic says, well, there isn't enough evidence for me to say whether there is a God or not, so I'm undecided. But both groups are corrected by Romans chapter 1. Because what we see here is that all men have the knowledge by observing creation that God exists and that he created the world. And one look at creation cries back of this fact that God does exist. So, so general revelation makes God's existence conspicuous to all mankind. Number three, general revelation reveals at least some of the attributes of God. 
Okay, obviously one does not have a full and complete knowledge of who God is just by looking at creation. But notice what verse 20 tells us, that there are some attributes that are declared by creation, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. Now, fourthly, notice that general revelation renders mankind without excuse. That's what verse 20 says. That when sinful humanity stands before God on judgment day, they cannot say, Lord, if you would only have revealed yourself to me or given me more information, I would have certainly believed in you. But that's not what we find at all. No, they have enough knowledge to be held accountable for their truth suppression. I like the way Kevin DeYoung says it, and it's helpful this tonight. It's the book we just gave away, but he says this, none are innocent because none are wholly ignorant. That is, that all men know God exists, rendering them without excuse. Fifthly, general revelation is rejected by sinful man. You see this in verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So, so seeing God and his power in creation, what would be the right response? Well, it would be to, to give him glory for his creation. It would be to thank him for the blessings that he give, gives of a, of a beautiful sunset or of a mountain range or of, of, of a warm meal. But that's not what they do. They don't honor or thank him. Rather, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. Now, at this point, we should step back and be careful because I think the same tendency happens even for believers. Yesterday, I was able to take a walk with my wife, and there was a number of uh, birds that were out. And we're not bird watchers, but we're now forced to read this kid's National Geographic book that has all these birds in them to our to our son. And, and, and so we start to, now we're like learning about birds and know these things about birds. And, and where things I would just, you know, in past walk through and be like, okay, yeah, that, that's a bird. Now I'm starting to see the intricate details that are, that are in each one of these birds. And what that is intended to do is to turn our attention to the creator. Okay. It's not meant for us to suppress the truth and worship something else. Or just to say, well, well, that's nice. But it's meant to elicit in us a response of thanksgiving. But sinful man sees that, and they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Now notice sixthly, the, the last thing here. The rejection of general revelation is done under the guise of wisdom. Look at verse 22. In all of this, it says, claiming to be wise they became fools, right? They clearly perceive the creation and majesty of God. And they're like, yeah, no, we know a better way. We know the real story. And they claim to be wise and educated and sophisticated, but really they're foolish because they're, they're suppressing the truth that is so clear to them. So this is a description in these verses of what happens when men suppress the truth. And for this reason, God's wrath is revealed against sinful man. Now, this expression in verse 20 introduces three parallel descriptions of man's rejection and God's judgment in the following verses. So this leads us then to our third point, the reaping of the wrath of God. Now, it's at this point I need to switch to a different document because I need to get the rest of the message. Okay, so the reaping of the wrath of God in verses 23 to 31. 
So what we have in, in the remaining verses here is what we might call a double-triple. Okay? You just lifted up your heads there. Okay? You're like, I've never heard of a, a double-triple. Okay? It's two connected themes, and they're each repeated three times. Okay? So the first theme that, that's here in this passage is seen in this keyword exchange. The other theme is this, this, this expression, God gave them up. So what you're going to see in this passage is these, three ide- these two ideas repeated three times. And they repeat, they repeat like this. They exchanged, so God gave them up. They exchanged, so God gave them up. And they exchanged, so God gave them up. So notice the exchange in verse 23, 25, and 26. And really, we could say verse 7, right? So in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then in verse 26 and 27, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And then a similar statement in verse 27, and the men likewise gave up, or that idea of exchange in a parallel, a parallel concept there. Okay? So first is this idea of exchange, but then the result of the exchange is seen in God giving them up, giving them up, right? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Okay, so you have this idea in verse, in verse 20. It introduces, okay, they, they, they thought they were wise, they claimed to be wise, but really they became fools. And then here's the result. There's a three-part exchange leading to three-part judgment of God. Now, these ideas are connected because it's man's sinfulness that leads to God's judgment or his, I forget what, his judgment of, of abandonment is the term we use. Okay, so let's look at these three exchanges and these three forms of judgment. Number one, they exchanged the glory of God for idols. Okay, this is the story of humanity, is it not? We know God exists. We see it clearly from creation. But instead of recognizing him, we ignore him. But worse than just ignoring him, we erect something else in God's place. Whether it's a Buddha, whether it's a totem pole, for centuries people have been doing this. And it is an affront to, to God himself. Remember when the, the, the Israelites were... Um, were, were, were marched out of, the, out of the promised land in a tremendous victory. And then they erect a golden calf. And what do they say? This is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. And it's like, that is so stupid. Okay? But, but it's what mankind has done, and it's what we as sinners do, is, is instead of worshiping God, we put something else in his place. Like, it's bad enough to ignore him, but to totally reject him and exchange his glory for, for something else is, is utterly ridiculous, right? The word exchange in, in and of itself is, is an expression of, of thanklessness, okay? It's like someone gave you a gift and they're, you're like, I really, really don't want 
this gift, so I'm going to take it back and exchange it for something else that I do want. I mean, it's an expression of, of, of a failure to, to be thankful. I mean, in our culture, we've, it's acceptable. Like, if you get a gift, you don't like it, you take it back, and you get something you do like, and it's like, oh, look what I got you. Okay, that's acceptable. But not in the case with, with God. He has given us all things to enjoy and value, and we exchange it for something cheap and, and just an imitation. Okay, the exchange number two is the truth of God for a lie. Okay? The truth that's being referred to here is they, they saw clearly that, that God exists, but then they exchanged that truth for a lie and worship the creature rather than the, the creator. Now, number three, we see that they exchanged relations natural relations for unnatural relations, right? This is what we see in verse 26 and 27. That they exchange natural sexual relations for what is unnatural. Women pursuing relations with women and men pursuing sexual relations with men. We refer to as the the sin of homosexuality. Now what's surprising about verse 26 is that Paul leads with female homosexuality. And if my reading is correct then this is the only reference to female homosexuality in, in all of ancient writing. Now, obviously, I haven't read all of ancient writing, but according to what I read, this is the only reference to female sexual, uh, homosexuality. So if you want to know where, where it exists, this is, this is where it exists, Romans chapter 1. What's striking about that is when mankind uh, descends into sin, it's almost as if he's saying, This is something that's common even among the females. Like it's common to see men expressing themselves in sinful uh, sinful, uh, pursuits and sinful lusts and passions. But but usually the last ones to go are the women. And Paul says here, no, that even the women are expressing their their desires in, in homosexuality. And he says the same thing about male homosexuality as well. You're exchanging what was natural in a relationship with women for a relationship with other men. Now, the question I have when I come to this passage, and as I try to think through these issues, is this. Is, is Paul saying the sin of homosexuality is especially heinous? Okay, because um, that's often the way this passage is preached and considered that homosexuality is like the bottom of the barrel when it comes to, to sin. So I've tried to think through this particular issue, and I hope my thoughts on this passage are, are right and true and in line with the text. But this is, this is some of the questions I wrestle with as I come through this, right? So there does seem to be a digression in this passage. Like it's, it's, it's going from bad to worse. And as God continues to give them up, one of the demonstrations of this is the rejecting of the creator and exchanging what is unnatural for the pursuit of, of, or what is natural for the pursuit of what is unnatural. We also look at the punishment of sin in, in God's, God's law, Mosaic law, and there seems to be a sense in which God is, is hardest in his punishments against those sins that are specifically against the created order, right? So if you murder somebody, um, you have, you have taken a life that is made in the image of God. That's coming right out of, out of Genesis. If you, lie with a, if you lie with a man as a man should lie with a woman, it is an abomination, and the death penalty is given for it in Leviticus 6. And, and the Lord seems to be harsh with those things that are specifically 
cutting against the grain of the, of the created order. Furthermore, we certainly see degrees of punishment in the Scriptures. And the sin of homosexuality receives one of the strongest punishments in the, in the fire from heaven in the, in, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the, and the surrounding cities. So there is a sense in which God speaks very strongly against the, the sin of homosexuality. But in Romans chapter 1, I think it's important to recognize that, that Paul's point is not so much an evaluation as it is an illustration. Okay, let me say that again. He's not making an, an evaluative statement. He's making an illustrative statement about what happens or, or about a clear example of, of this kind of truth suppression that, that, that happens and, and what the fallout of it is. Okay, so... I don't think Paul's point is to say that homosexuality is the very bottom of the barrel when it comes to sin. Certainly there are other sins we would put there that are more heinous, like pedophilia or, or rape. But when Paul is saying that homosexual, what Paul's saying here is this, that homosexuality is the clearest example of the sin of Romans 1. Okay, so what's the sin of Romans 1? Well, suppressing what is so clear and, and exchanging it for something else. Okay? So we clearly see that God created, and they, they, they clearly attempt to suppress it, and they exchange what is, is just so natural and normal from creation for a, a perversion of it. Okay? In this case, it was natural, and everyone knows that God created a man to be with a woman and a woman to be with a man. It, it, it's, it's, been, it's been so clear for, for, for thousands of years. But when man suppresses the truth and they exchange, this is a, this, the homosexuality is an example of what happens when the truth is, is, is suppressed and, and, and a lie is exchanged for the truth. So this is why Paul uses it here as an illustration of a clear example of what happens when the truth is, is suppressed. Homosexuality is a, an example of that. Not that it's, it's the most heinous sin that's ever existed. Now, as we move on, we, we see the three, three aspects of God's judgment in response to this. Three aspects of God's judgment, this, or what we refer to as this judicial abandonment. And what we see here is God wants to, if, if God wants to judge sinners, that sometimes the only thing he has to do is remove the restraints and allow people to pursue their sin unhindered. Okay? God is currently restraining sin. And we're thankful for that. Because we're able to enjoy life in a fallen world without everybody being as bad as they possibly could be. So God is restraining sin. But sometimes, in a form of his wrath, he abandons them. He abandons mankind so that they can pursue their own sinful desires. And this is what we see in this in this passage, verse 24, he says, God gave them up to impurity. Okay, the first sign of God's abandonment is the, the practice of sexual impurity. I think what's being said here in verse 24 is, is even deeper than this. It's an enslavement to impurity. Okay, people give themselves wholly to sexual sin. 
The second way God abandons is he says it gives them up to dishonorable passions. And this is where he says they exchange what is, what is natural for what is, is unnatural. And so clearly uh, the sin of homosexuality, especially when it's, when it's embraced wholesale, is an indication of God giving people over to their sinful desires. And then lastly, he says God gave them up in verse 28. God gave them up to a debased mind. Lastly, their, their, their mind is gone it's useless for perceiving the truth and righteousness. The judgment of abandonment is, is a terrible thing. And sinful humanity, this is why it's so important to repent when we hear the truth. Because we don't know if God will take that truth away like he did with the Pharisees. And we don't know if he'll allow us to just continue in our sins and become even more hardened. And so this is the urgency of, of hearing the truth and responding to the truth when we, when we hear it. And it seems from the Scripture that, that, that this judgment of abandonment, that people become particularly deaf to the truth, not only that they see, but that they hear from God's Word. Now, I don't think this means that every sinner who practices homosexuality is in the throes of judicial abandonment. But we might say this on a societal level when the society gives themselves wholeheartedly to celebrating this kind of thing and, and allowing this thing and, and, and pushing forward this thing, you can see on a society level, on a societal level, that, yeah, God has pretty much allowed this society to go their own path. And he has abandoned and started to remove the restraints. And if, any, if anything, Romans 1 helps us see what we see in our own day. Now, this brings us to the final point in verse 32. And that is the refusal to turn from the wrath of God. The refusal to turn from the wrath of God. Okay, he, he, in the verses here, he pretty much opens the sewer of depravity and shows how truth suppression leads to all kinds of expressions of sin. And he goes on and on about these expressions of sin. But notice the way he concludes with this condemnation of sinful humanity. Verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Sinful humanity, they know that God exists. And from chapter 2 and verse 14, we know that the conscience is written, and the law of God is written on their heart, and their conscience condemns them. And they know that it is wrong to do these things. That, that's, that's bad enough. But what's even worse is they encourage and they celebrate those who do the same thing. It's bad enough that you're driving off a cliff, but sinful man then celebrates everyone else who's driving off the same cliff. It's, a, it's a, an especially arrogant expression of, of sin and hostility to God. It's bad enough that you're condemned, but you're celebrating the condemnation of others. Sometimes you might hear a sinner say, don't pursue the same path that I chose. And that's good advice. But when God gives this judgment of, of abandonment, they don't say statements like, don't pursue the path I chose, but they want to feel better about themselves, and so they encourage everyone else to do the same thing. Let's hold a, a pride month, and let's celebrate this sin and many other sins as well. 
So this is what we see in this passage, a clear picture of God's wrath being revealed against mankind when they suppress the truth. Now, what can we learn? What are the applications and implications from this passage for our lives? There's really four things to mention. First is this. As I said, I think this is a helpful description of what's taking place in our world. I want to be careful here because I think people can become unhelpfully patriotic at this point. So this past, uh, this past week, I, I was just telling you, I had two guys come to work on my septic uh, tank and why I stood there and talked to them while they were doing this is another story because it's not a pleasant experience. But nonetheless, um, they were probably broadly Christian, definitely conservative politically. And the tone of the conversation was like, well, the, the homosexuals and the, the transgenders are, are ruining our country. It's like, okay, well, I would have like similar... Th- political leanings and concerns about this issue in society. But sometimes when, when we talk about this issue, it's so connected to the nation. Okay, it's so connected to America. Like, like we yeah, preach God's judgment on this sin because America needs to hear this because America needs to, to get back. Okay? That's fine, whatever. But, but you know what people aren't concerned about? when you go back earlier in the passage and, and, and you read this expression that they didn't honor God or give thanks to him, we just sort of gloss over that. We're not, we're not really concerned about the honor of God and the glory of God and God being thanked for, 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 for his beautiful creation. We're more connected to, to this issue as it pertains to, to, to politics in, in, our, in our country. Okay? Now, like I said... This issue naturally pops up politically, and we're going to have perspectives that, that should be biblical and right. But my concern is we're not concerned about the glory and honor of God and that he receives thanks. And we're not burdened about this issue because God's being robbed of his glory, but America's being robbed of its healthy society. So I think when that happens, we need to check our citizenship. Okay, we're first and foremost citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and more importantly is that to see that the Lord is honored and that we were grieved over sin because it grieves the Lord, not because of what it does to our nation. Okay, I'll stop stepping on toes and we'll, we'll move on here, right? There's some, there's some lines in this passage that, that, that particularly pertain to, to, to what we're seeing today, though, right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Okay, or we might say this, claiming to be woke, they were really asleep. Okay? They exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. We certainly see that. And then this last phrase, that they know God's righteous decrees, they not only practice them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Okay? Certainly we see this in our society. So when someone wants to say, well, what's the world coming to? You can say, well, Romans 1 is a clear demonstration of this. Now, more specifically, what should we say for our purpose of our study about the sin of homosexuality? Well, I think we should notice, first of all, that it is a sin. Okay? 
We can't explain it away by saying, well, Paul's just talking about a, a perversion of a homosexual relationship. No, it's just it's clear. Okay? There's no other way to explain Romans 1 than two people who were passionate for each other and, and engaged in sexual immorality. It's, 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 there's no other way around Romans 1. Okay, we also, re- also recognize that it's a serious sin because we can't underestimate the fact that it's in the context of God giving them over to lustful passions. And so it's, it's, a, it's a scary thing because it's a result of God's letting people go. But I think we need to notice this. It is not the unpardonable sin. Now sometimes when I hear Romans 1 preached, it's, it comes across as if there is no hope for repentance for the sin of homosexuality. And I get why this is often the case because of the seriousness of judicial abandonment right, in this passage. But we can't forget the context. Okay, the context, it begins in verse 16. Paul's like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Then he shows the reason why the gospel is needed. Because the wrath of God is revealed against humanity. His point is not to show that the wrath of God is so revealed against sinners that there's no possible way for them to to, to turn from their sin and that the hardening is permanent. It's quite the opposite. That apart from the gospel, there's no hope. But the whole point of the context is this is the power of God to transform lives. So this isn't the unpardonable sin. And he bookends this in, in, in chapter 3 and verse 21 by saying, now the righteousness of God is manifested to those who will put their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what Paul's saying is not the gospel's powerful, but it's not that powerful. No, he's saying it is powerful and it is needed because the wrath of God is being revealed against sinners. And their only hope is to hear the good news of the gospel and turn. Now, what we need in our day from believers is that we not be afraid to speak the truth in love. That balance always needs to be maintained because some people are really good at truth speaking and they do a really bad job of doing it lovingly. And others are kind of good at a sort of faux love but not very good truth speakers. So we've got to always hold those two things in the balance. Okay? We always call sin, sin. Right? We always be clear to stand on the authority of God's word. But we have to say it in a way that is loving. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, we do so so that God might perhaps grant repentance to those who are lost in the error of their way. So hopefully this passage is clear, but I think it helps us think too, like, hey, the only hope is is the gospel. The only hope is the truth spoken in love from the pages of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, help us to think clearly on this matter and to be bold in our proclamation of the truth, but to be loving as well. May you be honored by the way we think and respond on this issue. 
so that we represent you well and we stand on the, the authority of Scripture well. So many mixed messages in our society and different, different perspectives on how to go about these matters. So we need wisdom, but we've got to stand on the authority of the Word and, and speak with clarity as well. So, so help us navigate the various situations we face and continue to, to put our confidence in you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.